I'm Neil Acharya. I am Nate Sager. And this is Sports Lit. It's the digital age. Chances are, if you want to be forgotten, you never will be. There are countless of pieces of you out there for the world to see. On the flip side, if history has neglected you, if no one remembers you, all it takes is one person to enter a search and you have the chance to come to life again. George Washington Orton. Does the name ring a bell? Probably not, but last month, Mark Hebsher released a book that explains why it should for Canadians. Orton holds the distinction of being the first Canadian to win an Olympic medal, medal a gold medal, and however, for 70 years, his feet and hurdles and the steeplechase at the 1900 Summer Games in Paris, Summer Olympic Games in Paris, were credited to the U.S. as Orton was enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania when he reached the podium. But make no mistake, Orton was Canadian. Born in Strathroy, Ontario on January 10, 1873, six years after Confederation. Moreover, he impacted the sport in a large way during his 85 years on Earth. At the time, of his, uh, during his lifetime, he organized leagues in North America. During his, time, during his lifetime, organized uh, leagues in North America were still on the horizon. Sports and sporting events were still the Wild West, and Orton was a trailblazer, helping in certain ways to lay the groundwork for what we now know as professional sport. There are many reason, reasons why Orton's story remained obscure for so long. One that came to my mind was the nature of the Olympic coverage. In terms of mainstream sports coverage, it's much like the cherry blossom. When the cauldron is lit, it's like a brilliant bloom which has everyone hyper-focused for a condensed time, and then it all ends, and forgotten until it happens again two years later. But there are more layers to be peeled from the onion in this case, and, and I'm sure we'll find out exactly how with Hebsher. A little more on the author coming up, but first I introduce my co-host, Nate Sager, to share his vision of the book. Yeah, this is a, you know, a good, accessible read about a sports person who slipped through the cracks of history. I could see this being like something you give to, like, say, a class of you know, high school students who are, you know, they're developing their media consciousness, their media literacy, and uh, need to understand that how mass communications, the media sometimes has blind spots and, and biases that factor into, you know, whose story gets told, uh, you know, whose perspective takes priority and ultimately who is popularly remembered. Now, obviously, some of why uh, George Washington Orton was forgotten a lot had to do with the technology of the day. Now the world, you know, gets smaller every day. It was the day before we sat down to record this. We, we you know, we watched a Canadian teenager named Alfonso Davies score a goal for Bayern Munich in Germany. And then we watched Bianca Andreescu win a tennis tournament in California. The, the, the world gets smaller every day. It w wasn't the case when George Orton was competing in the late 19th and early 20th century. But uh, George, as Mark Hebsher details, was this person who was not just an Olympic champion, but was so far ahead of his time as an athlete. If you ever saw the... Uh, one of the best feature films that ever explains middle distance running was probably the Steve Prefontaine biopic Without Limits that came out about two decades ago with Billy Crudup and Donald Sutherland. And it's always it is like talking about splits and everything. Well, George Washington Orton was doing that, like, I guess about 75 years before Steve Prefontaine was uh, competing. So as Neil, you elucidated it, uh, though, because it was he was Canadian, because they're organized sports was you know in its nascence you know early days uh, there was also a bit of a oh you think you're too good for us eh minimizing impulses going on in Canada at the time with people who 
you know, were high achievers and left for the U.S. Uh, you know, he just sort of slipped through the cracks. Thankfully, Mark Hebsher has exhumed this story and offered a helpful reminder of why we need to pay attention to, you know, all the athletes are worried, not just the ones maybe that the media tells us to care about. I hope I got that right. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. Our guest today uh, is author Mark, he- Mark Hebsher, uh, most well-known for his 11-year run from 1984 to 1995 on Global TV's Sportsline, which he co-hosted with Jim Taddy. During its heyday, their chemistry was magnetic, and the show drew a lo- loyal following in the hundreds of thousands. And, of course, he brought us the Hebsies, uh, the Sports Blooper Awards. Um for those that have not heard of Sportsline or are part of a younger generation, it was like a 30-minute Jay and Dan if the internet didn't exist and the 24-hour news, 24 news cycle didn't exist as well. It was appointment TV and it was funny. Hebsher, or Hebsey as he's known, has been a broadcaster for nearly 40 years on radio and television, now hosts the podcast Hebsey on Sports, and the two-time Gemini nominee for sports broadcaster now has a book to his credit. Coming up, Mark Hebsher to discuss the greatest athlete you've never heard of, Canada's first Olympic gold medalist about George Washington Orton. Welcome, Mark. Oh, hi, Neil. How are you? Uh, I'm very good. I'm Excellent. glad to have you here. And, well, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to get right into it and ask you, how did a trivia question compel you to make a book about George Washington Orton? Well, uh, you know, trivia, of course, the word means really, you know, insignificant, unimportant. And so you would think that something unimportant would be able to be passed over. But in this particular case, since I'm a so-called sports expert, when my then 15-year-old son asked me who was the first Canadian to win an Olympic gold medal, I said, well, that's Etienne de Marteau, Montreal, 1904, weight toss. He was the first. And my son said, nope. And right then and there, I went, I know my stuff. What do you mean, kid? And he showed me in this trivia book, the great Canadian trivia book, the question. And so that got me thinking, well, how did I not know that, number one? And number two, why don't I know about him? And what can I find out? So you hit Google, you look for any article or anything that was written about the guy, and there wasn't a heck of a lot. And that got me thinking, why is this guy not... Uh, more prominent. Why? How did he slip through the cracks? Why? Why is there nothing about this guy that was our first? At the very least, if he did nothing else in his life and won a gold medal, the first one for Canada, why is he nowhere in the history books? Why can't I find anything about him? So that compelled me to huh, go on an odyssey, which uh, where I, I found out I uh, he's my guy now. I feel <laughs> as if I'm his great grandson, and that I um, discovered him for the world to see, but especially for Canadians who have no, had no idea he existed, nor did I. So tell me about the process then, how long it took when you started and, and what that involved. Well, uh, it's, probably been, it's probably been a decade since that happened with my son, maybe eight years. But at the time I was working in Hamilton at CHCH TV, I had a full-time job and I really, except for a little, some interest and a little bit of you know, researching around, I really didn't uh, put, you know, jump in with both feet. But when I lost my job there in 2015, I suddenly had time on my hands and, you know, okay, what are you going to do now is the first thing they ask you, no matter what the job, what are you going to do now? So my thing was, you know, I've got this, uh, I did some podcasting and I still do, but I also, here was an opportunity for me to pursue this story. Uh, and being from the television world, I thought, boy, a documentary, I'll put, and I've done documentaries before. They can come in all forms. They can be short, long, um, but I had done them before. So I, and I understand what a documentary is. Uh, and I said, you know, maybe I'll do a documentary on this George Washington Orton fellow. Find out more 
um, and find out where that gold medal is. The first one won by a Canadian. Because to me, that would be as elusive as any Canadian sports artifact would be. The Stanley Cup has been around since 1893. We see, we see it all the time. It almost gets overexposed. It's a big, huge piece of hardware. But what about the first gold medal won by a Canadian? So that was sort of my, the impetus was, hey, I don't, where do I find this medal? So I started digging like a detective would. And as I'm looking to find members of his family or someone who might have the gold medal, I just uncovered another layer and another layer of a life of a guy who never said anything about it. He never wrote anything or told anyone about his accomplishments, and his accomplishments were many. That, that's very Canadian of him. And I guess uh, what did it sort of say about the way Canada was at the time that he was just, he, you know, it was kind of like, oh, he went to the States, bye-bye. That was the impression I sort of got from the book. But is that, is that accurate? I, you see, I, I'll never know because I can't speak for the editors of the day or the journalists of the day, but the way I understood it was Canadians – we're very proud to be Canadian at that time, and they'd only been around for 30 years. You're talking about the mid to late 1890s. And so to find out that someone who is fairly prominent in Canada would go to the United States to seek fame, fortune, or whatever, was kind of a, 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 you know, a, a slap across the face. Wait a minute, those are the Americans. They, they beat the British. They, inv- you know, they, they defeated the British. We're British. We're loyalists. Right. And so that uh, you know, was explained to me that at that time, they weren't really enamored with the fact that here our best people were going to the United States. Of course, it was all right for James Naismith, but only after he invented basketball in Springfield, Massachusetts. Before that, he was the athletics director at McGill. And, you know, oh, you're going to the United States? To, fine, off you go. Now, of course, he invents basketball. Now, of course, Canadians, you know, a few years later went, hey, wait a second, he's one of ours. So there's sort of the, it's the reverse here. It was like, fine, you go. And then even when he was successful in Philadelphia, at the University of Pennsylvania, when they wrote about him in Canada, they never referred to him as a Canadian. They never said George Orton of Toronto, Ontario, born in Strathroy, Ontario, U of T, 1893, uh, world record holder, mile run. They never put any of that in. They just sort of said, oh, we think he might have become a doctor or <laughs> that kind of a thing. It was just, I thought, you're telling me that these guys didn't, know, like, they didn't go back in their own archives and say, didn't we write about this guy every, almost every week in Toronto for three, four years when he was in university? And yeah, and when he was at the U of T, like, like you think track and field now is this niche sport, but it wasn't then. It was like big spectator sport, was it not? Yeah, it was huge because there wasn't. I mean, there I, in those days, you're probably looking at boxing, and maybe not even. Maybe it was still. It was like the bare knuckle era. So maybe <laughs> it was running. It was rowing was a big thing. Ned Hanlon, of course, you know, sculling, um, and, and foot racing, of course, track and field. Uh, soccer, somewhat popular amongst the immigrants. Football really at that stage was kind of more rugby, rugby football, of which the U of T had many rugby and soccer teams, I found out, and no ice hockey team until George Orton came along. Another reason why he's a pioneer. Yeah. Um, um, and so, it, you know, sports at that time, you're right, was, you know, let's go pack uh, the stadium, not varsity in those days, it would have been the Rosedale grounds where the Toronto Lacrosse Club was, and three, four, five thousand 5,000 people would pack in and watch you know, of course, all the track and field events, which when you think about it, you know, the mile run, the 100 meters or 100 yards, uh, long jump, high jump. These have been around for years. You can, you know, they have been competed in it at every level. So these are sort of go to sports. I mean, every every country fair had foot races and jumping and running and stuff like that. So this was these were natural spectator sports at the time. And just touching on Ned Hanlon, Ned Hanlon was also, I, I didn't realize that must be why Hanlon's Point is on yeah. Toronto Island. It's named after a, a rum runner and a great athlete in his own right. He was, and a, and a different type of athlete because he was a professional. And sort of in those days, it was let's watch the greatest rower in the world. And, you know, professionals were not looked at the way they are today. They were 
you know, there would be a lot of collusion going on between the athlete and the promoter to, you know, to, to uh, soak the public for their money. I mean, quite frankly, if, if Med Hanlon was a five to one favorite to win and he knew he would put money on the other guy, he'd make it look good. He'd lose by a nose or, or he would lose. And then and then he'd make all his money on the rematch, you know, right. when he knew he could beat the guy. So so that, that was professionalism, whereas amateurism was pure. Right. An amateur was pure, uh, um, never took a dime for anything, uh, never even uh, could not, not even offer their services uh, to teach or to coach for any type of payment whatsoever, the purity of sport. And, of course, you know, if you wanted to be known as a pure athlete, you had to be an amateur because professionals could be corrupt and they could contaminate amateurs. That's the way they looked at it. If you competed with, if an amateur competed with a professional in Toronto, he was considered to be contaminated. Whereas in Montreal, no problem. Go ahead, you know, you go ahead and run against each other. What do we care? So, yeah, it's sports as spectacle versus sports at its purest form, and there's two polar ends. Yeah. Um, going back to just to, to that time period and why George Orton might have been forgotten, um, I was looking back, I did a little historical digging, and you think, okay, Vimy Ridge is often cited as the major nation-building moment for Canada. Mm-hmm. That's still 17 years away from George Orton when he won in 1900. Yeah. Um, his, but, his, but at the time, they didn't. But, of course, at the time, the Olympics weren't as big a deal right. as they are today. So mm-hmm. it's hard to quantify that. I mean, right. he might have thought, you know, I'm more interested in winning the U.S. national championship than some race in Paris, right. you know, on a crummy track, uh, you know, with like 800 people in the stands. And, and also at that time, I mean, uh, we're talking about Canada, as, as we said, it's a loose, it's, it's not what we know of as Canada today. There, you know, Saskatchewan's population boomed. Uh, something like a thousand percent between 1891 and 1911. Uh, yeah. Uh, so can the fact that this went unnoticed be tied by Canadians and, and, and citing this as a Canadian achievement be tied to the fact that, you know, Canada was really without a true identity at the time, or at least developing its identity for sure. When it came to, uh, athletics, but I think it's more than that. I think if you were to look back and find, I think. If I, if I could find someone who musically was the equivalent of George Orton, but, but for whatever reason, no one wrote about them or they didn't, they didn't toot their own horn, what would that be like if we found out the first great musician from Canada that was from 1890? Because I'll be honest with you, there's nothing that I could find at that, in that era, in the early days of Canada, when it came to art, architecture, music, any of that culture, fashion, and certainly not athletics. If we're talking about Ned Hanlon and Louis Sear and that's it, up until 1900, that's pretty slim pickings. But I bet you could name a thousand politicians, people that built the railroad, miners, loggers, you know, people that developed the country physically, educators, but nothing when it came to sports. I couldn't find anything, you know, maybe the Ottawa Rugby Club of 1891. But even then, I mean, you know, there were a couple of examples, but this was not a nation that was into physical fitness. We weren't into physical fitness. Game playing games was for wealthy people, uh, the cricket grounds, or you know, that type of a thing. You, you, you. The average person couldn't. You could kick a tin can in the street, maybe, but there was no. And in the schools, there was no physical fitness. There was no phys ed or anything like that. Not until Teddy Roosevelt in the, I guess, the late 1890s, early 1900s, where he said, you know, like to America, let's get physical. Let's let's concentrate on physical fitness and nutrition. And 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 uh, so they would have like uh, marching, 
Well, that didn't exist except in the military. Well, marching was is good. You know, get your heart rate up there, that type of thing. So imagine how sedentary Canadians were. And there wasn't even an athlete to look at and say, I want to be like him or I want my kid to be like George Orton or something like that. But there wasn't that at all. Let, let's backtrack here for a second uh, as well. And we talked about this off the intro. But as we know now, and you referred to it earlier or cited it earlier, he was based out of Philadelphia where he'd moved for university. Mm-hmm. And... He competed at the 1900 Summer Olympics in Paris uh, as part of the University of Pennsylvania. But Well, no, but see, here's what happened is they sent a delegation. Right. So in those days, it was like, well, who's going? Uh, who we got? So let's get the best uh, athletes. Well, from New York, we've got these guys. From Chicago, we got these guys. From Boston, we got these guys. From Philly, we got these guys. Right. And so they came in as part of a delegation. So the New York Athletic Club sent a delegation okay. of six people. So he... He went along with, and Penn at the time was a powerhouse in, in track and field. So there were 13 athletes from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, Orton had graduated years before that. He was 27 years old. But of course, since he went with this delegation and he was the graduate track coach there and the lacrosse coach there, naturally the assumption was he competed for Penn, which competed for, which was fine, I guess, at the time. He never felt the burden of running for his country. He never felt that, oh, geez, I'd better win for Canada. There was no flag and country to run for. So he's part of a delegation. He wants to win. So that was basically it. But of course, if someone doesn't write it that way, and then someone says, oh, he ran for the United States. Penn. Penn is the United States. He must have been an American. Why would? And of course, Horton at the time didn't say, hey, folks, just want to let you know, I'm Canadian. Write that down. C-A-N-A-D. No, he didn't do that. So what happened seven decades later? When in the You say, this, you know, the 70s, they found out he was Canadian, or at least corrected. What happened at the IOC in the 70s? Right. So what happened was the IOC in the early 70s, uh, David Walashinsky, who wrote, has written the, the book of um, Olympic lists for, you know, decades, uh, him and his researchers discovered that Orton was indeed from Strathroy, Ontario, University of Toronto, Canadian record holder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they went, wait a minute, how come, why is USA next to his name here, next to the gold and the bronze medals in 1900? And of course, they did a, an investigation. Of course, in those days, a little more difficult than you know when you've got the internet. But still, and they determined absolutely he's Canadian. And and you know they said to the IOC, we're changing the medals. They're going to we're going to take those medals away from the United States' tally, and we're going to give them to Canada. But they didn't hold a big press conference and say, ladies and gentlemen, right. Canada's now none of that. They didn't even notify Orton's family that they were doing this. It was in 1971. Or they very quietly, no press conference, switched them over. A few years later. When Canada was preparing for the 76 Summer Olympics, which, remember, was the first Olympics ever hosted by Canada, they wanted to do some research into previous Canadian champions. And at the University of Western Ontario, which is Western University now, they someone had said, wait a minute, we think there's a guy. We've read some research that this guy, George Orton, might have been from Strathroy, Ontario, which is about a half an hour from London. Oh, and so they started calling around and writing letters, and they found out he went to the University of Pennsylvania. They wrote a letter to the University of Pennsylvania, which I had... I have a copy. I don't have a copy of the letter, but I have a copy of a photo of it. And in fact, this fellow had asked if they could send any biographical information and a photo of George Orton, class of 1896, uh, PhD, anything that they could, you know, substantiate that he was from Canada and a photo of him. Well, whoever the researcher was at the University of Pennsylvania looked up Orton, saw a picture from the 1904 track team, Orton. Looked pretty good to me. He was a runner. <laughs> There's the picture. And in fact, it was a picture of his younger brother, Irvin Orton, okay. who still holds the record at Jarvis Collegiate, by the way, in the 440, uh, 224, 40, and 880. Not far from here. <laughs> Not far at all. But anyway, just uh, I digress there. So, so for years, 
this picture was thought to be the picture of George Orton. Uh, how would we know any difference? No one had ever seen a picture of him. So who would question? Only a family member or someone who knew him would see this picture perhaps and go, wait a minute, that's not him. But of course that didn't happen because he didn't have any family. He had one granddaughter you know, still alive. So for many, many years, this was thought to be the picture of George Orton. When I, when I did research for the documentary and I finally found his granddaughter after many years of trying uh, and I sent her the article and the picture, she said, she sent me an email right back. She said, that's, that's not my grandfather. <laughs> and now I'm, what? So there's another mystery. That's not him. And how did this happen? And how could this mistake have been? And of course, now I'm looking at all various websites who use, of course, use this picture, including the Toronto Star, who use this picture whenever they talk about great Olympic heroes from Canada, which is, you know, every four years, right? right. <laughs> so I contacted people that I know, Nate, you know these people too, at the Toronto Star, and said, look, I'm just going to give you a heads up, professional courtesy, that photo and the text is incorrect. I'm writing a book about him, and that's not him. And you say he competed for the United States, and he didn't. Oh, okay, we'll look after that. They never did. They never changed it, never made a correction, never made an apology, never made a retraction. So right then and there, I thought, you know, I'm going to have to, uh, he's dead. I, I'm going to have to act for this guy. This is, it's wrong. It shouldn't be this way. This guy should be in the history books. This guy should be respected. His family should be respected. Y you made a mistake, uh, and which is fine to admit to your mistake, but admit to it. Say, okay, we screwed up, and here's, and here's a picture of him now. And, and he didn't compete for the United States. Hey, courtesy me, credit my book. I don't care if you do or not, but change it. Like, do me a favor, get it right. Get the, because if you don't, years from now, people are going to look up George Orton. They're going to see the picture in the Toronto Star, which likely is going to be way up there in the Google search. And they go, <laughs> that's him. Yeah, now for context, too, you mentioned he didn't run for flag or country. How much did that create to the whole, I guess, confusion that the fact that the early Olympic movement wasn't so tight, didn't seem to be so tied up in nationalism? Well, it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. The idea of national teams didn't come till 1908. So once they decided in 1908, okay, we're, from now on, every every athlete has a country is attached to a country, you know their birth country. So what did they do? They said, okay, now we we already had three Olympics already. What do we do with these three Olymp these three Olympics? What do we do with the winners? Well, we have to retroactively put a name of a nation next to them, and this is how USA went next to Orton's name. So at the time, it was I guess it was bragging rights for your athletic club. I guess the New York Athletic Club wanted to beat the Manhattan Athletic Club. I guess people who were part of the Boston delegation from Harvard, maybe, wanted to beat the Pennsylvania delegation from Penn. I guess University of Chicago delegation, which was led by a famous football coach, Amos Alonzo Stagg, one of the most famous of all, he led the Chicago contingent. Um, and so they didn't always get to compete against each other in national championships or whatever. So this was an opportunity to prove on the international stage. So they weren't running for America. They were like this. There's the Chicago guys. There's the New York guys. There's the Penn guys. There's the there's the Princeton guys. There's the Harvard <laughs> <Princeton>. guys. Yeah, <laughs> there's the Syracuse guys. That kind of a thing. That Those were the rivalries in those days. No professional sports. So the rivalries were amongst the universities and their top athletes and the New York Athletic Club, which the famous um, iconic uh, winged, uh, you know, winged foot logo. Uh, those those were what people watched. Those were the, the best names played, you know, went to those universities or, and then graduated to those athletic clubs. And it, had no, it didn't matter where you were from. You know, you came from Ireland, but now you're in New York. We don't care. You're running for the New York Athletic Club. You're from Canada and you're at Penn. We don't care. You're, an, you're, you're running for Penn. And this was only the second modern Olympics, but as you detail in the book, and I, I had no idea this was the case, like the Paris 1900 Olympics were something of a gong show in terms of organization. <laughs> Completely. Before, before you answer that, actually, um, we always like to get our authors to read uh -huh. 
And so we want to you to get you to read that part where you describe how disorganized it, it was. And yes, we'll just let you get uh, reading glasses. your reading glasses on. Um, but yeah, there, you know, it's described oh, quite well there. Sorry, mouth went flying. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I mean, I wrote. I wrote it a long time ago. So give me the passage. I'll just there. get you oh, to, from the highlight, and then it goes over to the next page, and it's highlighted where you, you will finish reading. So it's basically it. a page. All right. So this is where um, this is where Orton is. Uh, he's at the Olympics in Paris, and he's entered in a ton of races. Now he's not sure which races are actual Olympic official Olympic races or just races right. against the best in the world. And it didn't matter to him at the time. It's like, look, I'm racing against the best in the world. Um, but of course, they had two types of races, flat races, where everybody starts at the same time and they don't finish at the same time. And then handicap races where the person who's the best out of the field has to give a handicap of uh, a, a number of seconds or right. fifths of seconds or actual lengths. So in the 100 meter dash, for example, he had to run 100 meters because he was the scratch. But, but one of the guys only had to run 94 meters. Right? Yeah. It was weird. Anyway, so here's, here's the passage of the book. On Saturday, Orton easily qualified for the 400-meter hurdles final the, the next day, surprising the unbeaten French champion and crowd favorite Henri Tauzin by almost nipping him at the wire. However, it was a wasted effort as the French organizers had foolishly set up qualifying heats. Only five men had originally entered the 400 meters, meters it being a new event in the Olympic Games. The two heats eliminated just one man. Well, another American, William Lewis, decided to uh, decline to run in the final because it was on a Sunday. And, of course, the Sabbath, they did not want to run. That's a whole other story, which meant only three men would start in the final. So you're assured of a bronze medal, right? Which would be the first Canadian medal. Correct. The rest of Orton's schedule was full. He would not run in the 400-meter, 800-meter, 1,500-meter, or 4,000-meter flat races because of conflicts brought on by rescheduling of events. And I'm going to take an aside here. The French had originally promised the Americans there would be no events on the Sunday. The Americans wouldn't have gone over, they said, because of the Sabbath, which did not really exist in Europe. I mean, Europeans did not take Sundays off the way North Americans did. Um, so they were rescheduling these events um, because of a real mix-up. So Orton would run in Sunday's 400-meter hurdles final and then try to make good on his prediction in the 2,500-meter steeplechase. He had predicted in the newspaper he would win in the third person. On Monday, Orton would participate in the 4,000-meter steeplechase. Tuesday, he was scheduled to run in the qualifying heats of the 200-meter hurdles. And if he qualified, he would run in the finals on Friday. Wednesday, he was a late replacement as the scratch in the 100-meter handicap, meaning he had to give head starts for the rest of the field. Thursday, he was the scratch in the 2,500-meter steeplechase handicap. And Sunday, he was the scratch in the 1,500-meter handicap, which meant he would compete in six finals, three of which were handicap races and not considered official Olympic events. How's this for organization, eh? The 400-meter hurdles final was scheduled to take place at 2.45 p.m. on Sunday, July 15th, a clear and blazing hot day. Instead, the race wouldn't go off until 4.45, thanks to the incredibly poor management of the games. According to the program, the events of the day should have ended by 5 p.m. To make matters even more uncomfortable because of the ridiculous qualifying heats, only three competitors, Orton, Tozan, and American Walter Tewksbury, came to the starting line. At the gun, Tewksbury shot out to the lead and never headed, winning in 57-3. and Orton and Tozan battled it out for the silver, but after the final hurdle, a water jump, no less, 
The Frenchman pulled away to take second place by three meters. Orton ran 58 and three-fifths seconds for third. To get a sense of the vast difference between the two disciplines, the 400-meter hurdles and the 2,500-meter steeplechase, the French authorities had scheduled the races back-to-back, apparently not thinking or caring that one man was entered in both. This was highly unusual and a good example of how utterly disorganized these games were. The scheduling screw-up meant that Orton would be at a huge disadvantage. He had less than 45 minutes to get ready for the biggest race of his life, the one he had come 4,000 miles to win. There you go. And and, and so, um, just tell us a little bit about, so he's already won Canada's first medal. Yeah. And then... Tell us about how he wins Canada's first gold medal shortly thereafter. So, yeah, so he's got now, um, he's got a, he had been sick because there was a 10-day ocean voyage. Originally, they went to England, and he had gotten seasick, and, and he never really got his his, his legs. Um, and, and so he developed a stomach virus or something, and so he won the 400 meters, and his apparently his stomach was flipping, and now he goes out with very little rest at all, and he's running in this 2,500-meter race, which is an odd distance. It should have been 3,000 meters. Um, but the French laid out a track that was 500 meters around instead of 400 meters. It was a whole, it was a big mistake. Um, and so he, he had fallen so far behind in this, um, 2,500 meter steeplechase that it, it was thought that all was lost, that he was, he was almost a full lap back and he looked like he was struggling, but what they didn't, what they knew, but they weren't sure of was Orton had this clock in his head. He, he originated, uh, to, uh the idea of timing your intervals. It had never been done before. When he ran, uh, people would run as fast as they could for as far as they could until they collapsed. Just keep on running until you <laughs> collapse. And Orton thought, well, wait a minute. If the distance is so much, and since he was a, a real math expert, I mean, he could do calculus in his head. He figured out as a young man, a young crippled boy, because he had fallen out of a tree and couldn't walk till he was 12, 10 or 12. He figured out that um, if you time your intervals as such, you'll have more energy near the end. And so most of the races that he won, he would come from behind remarkably, it seemed, to the rest of the field. And it, this had never been done before. No one conserved their energy and then made this burst at the end. And he was fabulous at it. So he had fallen far behind and it looked to be lost. And then he just had the clock in his head. Okay, 300 yards to go now. And he made up about 20 yards and then passed the leader. They had gone around through a forest the way the French had laid out this track. That imagine the far end of the turn and there's a grove of trees. And so you don't see the runners. You see them enter the grove of trees, but you can't see in behind the grove of trees on the far turn. And then when they come out of the grove of trees, like when they went in, Orton was like fourth. And then when they came out of the grove of trees, he's in the lead. <laughs> and some people thought he had actually like straight yeah. off the course and taken a shortcut. Right. Like Rosie Ruiz did in the 1980 right. marathon. Like, but, but, but he didn't. He just, his timing was uh, impeccable. He had a clock in his head and uh, he ended up winning um, Canada's first gold. And then they, and then he was entered the next day in the four thousand meters, and he had uh, just a terrible stomach. The New York Times said he had awoke with a deranged stomach, and he just couldn't go the next day. But but he and he finished fifth in the four thousand meters. But the crowd was so impressed with his effort that they gave him a round of applause as if he had won. They just cheered him on because they called him plucky, five six, hundred and twenty pounds, uh, a right arm that was basically a dead arm. Which I don't know if people. I mean, he hit, he tried to hide his disability as much as he could, as much as you could hide a dead arm. But 
he would have also been the first disabled athlete ever to win a gold medal at the Olympic Games. It shows in the pictures in the book, too, because he's always kind of he's posing with his left arm forward. It was his right arm. That his was right there. arm. But in actual fact, the, the, the arm and sort of the bicep and tricep developed okay, but the hand and the wrist was right. useless. Right. The nerves were damaged. He couldn't grip anything. He had no dexterity in his hand. But what he could do is you could shove the butt end of a hockey stick or a lacrosse stick there, and he could secure it. And then use his left hand to do all the work and apparently was, according to all newspaper articles, uh, an unbelievable hockey, a great skater and had a one arm shot that you can only imagine. I mean, you know, his strong left arm, he he could really shoot the puck. We are going to ask you about the hockey angle in a second. Um, But first, George was disabled uh, with with the dead arm. The first Paralympic Games are 60 years away, if I'm right. not mistaken. Correct. Um, in, uh, in Rome, in, right? In Greece, I thought it was in Athens, but you could be right. In 19, no, you're right. 1960 was Rome. Um, Correct. Yeah, yeah that's what I believe. Sorry about that. Oh, it's, oh please, <laughs> please don't be sorry. Um, um, so the, cl- the closest origins I've heard about to um, Paralympic kind of events are after World War II in England, I believe, veterans were competing. Um, does the fact that he was disabled make this even greater you just said he won the first medal and the first paralympic or i guess first paralympic medal in a way well he was the first uh he would have been the first paralympian had there been a paralympics back there um and in fact i had uh, called i gotten in touch with the ioc to tell them that their uh that their athlete who was supposed to be according to them the first uh disabled athlete to win in 1904 was a fellow who had and i can't think of his name now uh, was a fellow who had his uh, leg amputated and he won like five medals in gymnastics. Wow. He had a wooden leg. He had a wooden leg and he still competed and won gold. Right. And I thought, well, that's pretty remarkable. And then I, and I got in touch with the researchers and said, uh, I have some information here that George Orton certainly would have qualified as a Paralympian today with the disability that he had. Uh, never mind the fact that he was crippled until whatever age. It could have been polio. It could have been a blood clot on the brain. The point is he overcame a serious injury. But the other one was he had a disability. He had a dead right arm. Now, if you're hurdling or you're steeplechasing, I would think you would be able. You would need that arm, a good strong arm, to be able to you know catapult yourself over hurdles. So he would have been considered disabled, but he never considered himself to be disabled, and he wanted to hide that fact because, of course, in those days. You, it was no source of pride. In fact, it was a source of embarrassment in a lot of ways. You wanted to hide that fact. So every picture of him, he's got his bad right arm away from the camera. He's leaning with his sort of his left shoulder. Quite interesting. So is it? Is it? Does it make it more? I think so. Yeah. I mean, um, think of the. I mean, if you talk about overcoming adversity in any uh, situation, let's talk about Canadians that have overcome adversity. For example, tell me of someone who was crippled, if that was the term in those days, was mm-hmm. disabled. Mm-hmm. Uh, came back from that to become a world champion, and yet also off the field of play was a remarkable man and did so many things to advance 20th century sport and educate uh, people uh, physically, emotionally. I mean, this I think this felt had he stayed in Canada, he, he would have been one of the major contributors. Now, the fact that he went to the United States, but he was still Canadian, does that not count for something? We'd probably have a heritage moment with him. I would like to, and this is one of the issues I have here, is I'm trying to get this book and and the information out to important people that have put in their books, the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, Who's Who of Canada, the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, the Canadian Olympic Hall of Fame, all of these to say, guys, nothing right, you've got it wrong. Can I, may I provide you with the information 
the correct information about this great man who happens to be from Canada. Not, not well, we think he might be from Canada. Not, well, does he qualify as a Canadian? Look, if, if uh, what's her name, um, the, and I, geez, I'm sorry, the actress who married the prince, oh, if she was considered to be from Canada for a few months because she lived here while she was doing the show Suits, then how do, why am I having so much trouble getting people to go, yeah, oh yeah, was he ever, why are people not embracing this? Well, they don't know. So I'm trying to get this across. And I'm also trying to explain that journalism, that just because you read something in the newspaper, doesn't mean it's the truth. And very few people are willing to kind of go back and go, wait a minute, I want to question that. I wanted to question it because I thought, this can't be true about this guy, what, I, what I've heard. This can't be, how could this guy? And then the more I went to find out, the more I was, he did that as well. Like every accomplishment I found was just more remarkable than the previous one. Yeah, and, and as you said, if he had done nothing else, he'd still be a remarkable guy. But what were, you know, sort of Cole's notes, you know, forgive us, <laughs> some of the things he did in his second sporting life that really, I guess, pushed the ball down the field for other athletes, uh, female and male, which mm. I guess was remarkable at that time. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we talked about disability and this, he was one of the first to uh, accept females and, and encourage them to become athletic. He compared fem- a female swimmer, Ethel Lackey, who was an Olympian, with a male swimmer in the 20s. How could you? Ridiculous. They said to him, are you nuts? So no, we, you know, she's, she's as good as the men. And her times proved, not unlike uh, the uh, young lady who uh, did very well in the uh, skating skills competition uh, wow. a while back. Just the Goldfield. fact. field. Yeah. Uh, just the fact that you're even close uh, to the men, uh, just making the comparison was ridiculous in those days. So uh, he was, uh, you know, and uh, he, he was responsible for uh, two black schools playing in Philadelphia, again, in the 1920s, uh, a football game, the Tuskegee Institute and uh, Lincoln University, which was just in those days was unheard of. Like, why would you do stuff like that? So he really, I mean, he was the one who helped promote the, well, he, he hosted the Dempsey-Tunney fight, 120,000 people in Philadelphia in the stadium. So he was very aware, and I think he was a real, um, he was a defender of equal rights, I, I think I could say, many years before uh, it became popular, certainly before the 70s when Title IX took over in the United States. He was a real defender. And unfortunately, people he worked with were the opposite. They did not want women to compete. They prevented women from going into the Olympic Games in 1912 in the United States because they said, we don't want to see women wearing, they shouldn't be wearing bathing suits in front of men. That's how ridiculous it was to think that, well, we can't have these women diving and swimming in the Olympic Games because we're defenders of modesty here in the United States. Ridiculous. Yeah, and just to think, it's funny you bring up swimming, too. Like, uh, I think even to this day, women still don't swim, like, the 3,000 meters, you know, Ryan Cochran's signature event. But that's topical because uh, we always like to uh, give our guest a gift, and this is a oh, I real love title for us there. Oh, Mark, I know. Please. It's the Matchless Six. This is the story of Canada's first women's Olympic team. This is a fantastic story because the coach of this team was also the coach of the men's team, and he didn't know how to train women, and he really wasn't aware that there might be a different way to train women for the same events men have. Maybe you don't yell at them the way you yell at men. Right. Maybe you pat them on the back when they're different. Right. And right. what had happened was he uh, really didn't pay much attention to these uh, four women. Uh, Bobby Rosenfeld was one of them, Ethel Calderwood. I can't think of the names of the other one, but it's a fantastic story because this is when women for the first time were allowed uh, in the Olympic Games, in the Summer Olympic Games in Canada. And this is the team that we sent them. We sent them a fantastic track team. But they traveled with the men, and they were coached by the same guy as the men. And he would admonish them for drinking Coca-Cola, for example. So you can't do that. That's not how you train. Let's get serious. You want to be. You want to win. You have to train like the men. 
And you see, they didn't have these training. The women didn't have the same training facilities or even the same type of coaching until the men said, this is the way I coach the men. If you want to be champions, you're going to do what I tell you to do. So instead of, and I don't know what the training regiments they might have been. I don't even want to hazard a guess. But you want to be champions like men? These are Olympians. Percy Williams had been in the games. He, these guys knew how to train for world-class competition, and they wanted to make sure that the women of Canada had the same training uh, techniques, the same facilities, the same coaching available, so they could compete against the best in the world. And they did. Had you uh, had you read this book before? I hadn't read this book, but I know. I mean, I believe me. In my research, I did a lot of reading about the early days of uh, of, uh, of Canadian sports, and, and this was remarkable. I mean, the days of. I mean, this was this is when Canada really was on the map. This is when Canadians really started paying attention to sports internationally. This was before um, the NHL. I mean, the NHL existed, but not the same way. It wasn't as popular before Connie Smythe, you know, built Maple Leaf Gardens right. and all that. And like they said before, running was a big thing. Track and field was a huge thing, huge in those days. And of course, the Olympic Games was the first. This was the first time Canadians got a chance to compete against the rest of the world. Um, and talk about Canadian pride. I mean, a gold medal then to, you know, for a, for a young country to, to win gold medal was it was a huge deal. And it's also written by my grade ten history teacher, really? Ron Hodgkiss. Ron was uh, your grade ten history yes, he teacher. Was. Um, That's uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, building on that, I I didn't include this question, but since we were talking about it, um, George, Mr. Orton, we'll call him. Mm-hmm. He he wrote a lot. Now, he, before, uh, you know, what's uh, J- Derek Jeter's uh, thing called? The Players' the Tribune. Players Tribune. He was oh, almost his Tribune. own Players' Tribune. Back, uh, and then he also wrote uh, manuals, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And, like, uh, now, in Canada, I think we are very uh, well-versed in, well, not all of us, but Lloyd Percival, I believe, wrote a lot of books mm-hmm. back in the day. But he was on the same on the same level, but we've never heard of George Orton. Correct. He was way ahead, actually. He wrote, he wrote the first literal step-by-step instruction book, like step-by-step how to run, step-by-step, right? Like put the heel down first. or the so. And he did it in picture form, which had never been done before. There had never been an instructional book that way with pictures. He had photos taken of himself. He was the... He was the model, obviously, and, uh, you know, head held high and that type of thing. And it was quite interesting. This was in 1903. And then he wrote another book in 1905 that was for um, young boys. Right. Now, remember, at the time, you didn't, they didn't have manuals for female athletes because they virtually did not exist. Or certainly yeah. in the male mind, it was like, yeah, go, they can go play hopscotch right. by themselves well, or skipping. It was considered for women, it would be bad for them to, well, it to was you know, unfeminine. have a baby or something. I've heard all kinds of different unfeminine. things. Yeah. Unfeminine. Oh, you should see the stuff that was written about yeah. female athletes yeah. in those days. It was it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Just how manly and, you know, that type of thing and hair in the wrong places. Just really ridiculous. <laughs> it was ridiculous how women were looked at in those days. Um, so building on, so so he was ahead of his time when it came to, to writing with these sports manuals. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and he was also ahead of his time in, in developing sport. You talked about the, you know, in, you wrote about in the book about him bringing the Army-Navy game and um, as you talked about some some of the boxing events. So building on that, my next question, Ed Snyder mm-hmm. is seen as the father of NHL hockey in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. But Orton, after reading this, can be seen as the forefather of the sport overall yeah. Yeah. in that city. He Can absolutely was. Yeah, he so when he went to University of Penn, he had started helped start hockey at the University of Toronto. In those days there were no indoor arenas. None. Not till 1912 the Mutual Street Arena was there an indoor arena in Toronto. Nothing. So obviously the weather outside and they would play on at the Toronto Granite Club or wherever ice would, you know, form. 
And when he was at University of Toronto, he wanted to form a hockey team, but they, they literally had no ice. They had no place to play. And so he convinced them to flood a certain area, an enclosure in between the dormitories or something like that. But the ice was really rough and like they couldn't really practice and they could only play or practice whenever ice was available. So it was kind of a makeshift dormitory type team. When he went to Pennsylvania, took his skates with him and took a hockey stick with him and a puck, I guess. And then there were 25 other Canadians at the University of Pennsylvania at the time. He started a club called the Canadian Club where all the Canadians got together and they would extol the virtues of the University of Pennsylvania and their, you know, part of their, um, uh, you know, mandate, I guess, was, you know, to introduce people and to talk nicely of Canada and to tell Canadians about University of Pennsylvania. But of course, he also wanted to form a hockey team. So how many of you guys, well, they all had played hockey. So he introduces hockey to Philadelphia by saying, ever seen this sport before? Stick, puck. In those days, the puck, I think, was square too and wooden. But anyway, in... And so when I did the story and I did the research, I went, I told the University of Pennsylvania and they said, oh, no, 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 he didn't, it didn't start till, you know, 1898 or something like that. And I said, no, I have some information here that's going to surprise you. It started in December of 1896. He, he called for a practice for the first Penn team and 27 people came out and he formed the first team. He was the captain. He put a schedule together and rinks were just popping up at that time in Baltimore and in New York City. So he arranged for games to be played indoors at the first these first arenas back in the early days and he was one of the great hockey players but Americans were not American teams could not compete for the Stanley Cup they were not allowed it was only Canadian teams and that was done through a series of club games and that type of thing challenges so these American guys most of them were Canadian born players in New York and in Boston and Baltimore and Washington and Philadelphia bunch of Canadian guys, you know, you're okay. It's, we're not home, but this is, we like this. We're good at this. So these guys introduced, um, you know, hockey to uh, Americans and George Orton specifically introduced it to everyone in Philadelphia and had the first arena built. It burned down, had the second arena built, ended up coaching Penn and ended up being the inspiration for a rink called the class of 23 rink, which the Philadelphia Flyers trained at for many, many, many years. It was built in the sixties, but the class of 23 was George Orton's class. He coached that team at University of Pennsylvania. The, the players all graduated in 1923, but they were there in 1920, 21, and 22 when he coached. So that's the legacy. So when I told Brad Marsh and Jimmy right. Watson and Don Seleski the story, they were like, whoa, we used to train at the class of 23 rink. And I said, well, that, was, that would have been his team. Right. Pretty interesting stuff. Well, it's a great glimpse, too, into how you know he's on the cutting edge of when sport starts to get formed in terms of leagues now you look at you know he wins that medal in 1900 um the mlb formed in 1903 the nhl formed in 1917 the nfl formed in 1920 and english premiership which was then i think the first division was 1888 so we're really getting a look into how everything's coming together through guys like him really he should be in all of these sports books he should have been in there and i i I couldn't how can i blame any of the authors i mean if he wasn't in the record books, if he wasn't in the history books, how would any of these authors of these other books, how would they know about him? He never, he never tutored his own horn. He was, his granddaughter said to me, he says, this is a Protestant family. We would never speak of our accomplishments ever. And so here's her grandfather, who she looked at as a legend. She had heard that he was gold medal winners and a champion. And he left her with, you know, medals in a medal box and pictures and stuff like that. But he never talked about it. And he would never answer any questions about it either. 
So you're talking about someone who's so the opposite of Babe Ruth or Reggie Jackson or or uh, Joe Namath or any braggadocio. I mean, he just never talked about it. He talked about himself in the third person. But imagine, like if you had won a gold medal, would you not say to your relatives, you know, I, I won a gold medal in the Olympics? Yeah, it's interesting you reference Babe Ruth because obviously Jane Levy had the, the Babe Ruth uh, biography that came out last year and it was all about sort of how the myth was made you mm-hmm. know, and how he was the first person to really have an agent who promoted him and marketed him. And I guess George Orton was, I guess, sort of like the antithesis of that. Now, as far as crafting the book, what were sort of, you know, maybe a little bit of a shout out time, what were some sources you really consulted and helped you reconstruct all this, maybe even something else you read and said, okay, I think... I think this is where I need to go with this. Well, first of all, it was a documentary. So like I had said earlier, being a television guy, I wanted to put a story together in picture form, sound picture. The challenge, of course, was finding any any video or film of George Orton, which did not exist, of him running. So we had to hire some guys. So and, and along the way, you're I'm trying to construct a story for a, a um, documentary. But that failed documentary ended up being the book. The book was the story of the failed documentary. I'm a TV guy. What do I know about writing a book? So along the way, as I'm doing my research, two things I needed. One was I needed some kind of a break in finding his granddaughter. She was the only living relative. He was one of uh, six kids. Only him and his brother fathered children. Interesting. He fathered three daughters, only one of whom had a child, one child, and that's the granddaughter. Her name's Connie Meany, and she has no children. So this oh. is it. No, she, She's gone. No one's going to tell the story. So I kind of felt like a surrogate great-grandson in this case here. So she once, once I found out that she existed, she was a phenomenal source, of course. She had pictures. She had stories to tell. Uh, she had some medals, that type of thing. The other one was he went to the University of Pennsylvania. Their archives is extensive. So I met a guy named Mark Fraser Lloyd for the documentary. And I said, I'm doing this story on George Orton, this documentary. He goes, George Orton, George, like that, George Orton. Wait a minute, George Orton. I think I've got a file on George Orton. And then he checked and he said, yeah, I've got a file. I said, I want to come down with a camera crew. And he said, all right, I'll be here. And so I go into the Philadelphia archives at University of Pennsylvania and he's got a file on this guy. It was like, like finding a gold mine. Like you had a little nugget and then there's the gold mine. Right. Pictures, articles, letters he had written, journals, spectacular stuff. Blew my mind. So all of that information just really helped craft it. And then, of course, as I was doing the research, I found out he had been uh, elected to the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame. So now suddenly here's a guy that no one's heard of, and now he's being elected into the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame years after his death. And, any, and everyone there said, well, we read about his accomplishments, but we don't know anything else about him. And I'm like, I'm, writing a, I'm doing a documentary on him. So that timing could not have been better. So the Philadelphia Hall of Fame, University of Pennsylvania, but most importantly, a guy named Dave Johnson, who's the the director of the Penn Relays. The Penn Relays is one of the most, outside of the Olympics, the most famous track and field events in the world. It's been going on since 1895. It attracts the greatest athletes in the world. It's in Philadelphia. And George Orton was the director of the Penn Relays in their early days, and he helped nurture this event. So he, he made track and field incredibly popular as an athlete first, and then as an administrator PR guy. He really promoted the sport. He's also known as the father of cross country too. So he's the father of Philadelphia hockey, the father of cross country, which I like. Oh, that's a good one. He's, he's done it all. Um, so the tension of the book doesn't come from the buildup to winning the medal. The tension in the book comes from your quest to uncover his story and find his relatives. Um, is that kind of how you inserted yourself into this narrative? Like the book could have just been 
yeah. all George Orton. Is that in a build up to his his medal? But there's this underlying story of, of you, you know, seeing if this medal exists and going down to Philadelphia and uncovering what you just talked about. So that was for the documentary. I'm thinking this is going to look good, right? A good look. Imagine a camera. Here I am walking into a place looking for stuff. Here I am, you know, with the granddaughter. She's got a jewelry box. She's going to open the jewelry box. The camera's going to be there. The tension mounts. She opens the jewelry box, the gold medals. I mean, all that stuff. So I visualized what I thought was going to be going on. And since that failed, and then when someone saw a rough cut of the um, documentary, they said, why don't you just write a book about your experiences? Why don't you just make it a first-person account book of how your failed documentary uncovered this wonderful athlete? Uh, an interesting way of doing it versus a straight biography. His name was so-and-so. So I inserted myself because in actual fact, I was... You know, it was me. I mean, no one else was going to come along and go, hey, I think I'm going to do a story on an obscure Canadian guy. No one knew about this guy. So I sort of had an ownership, you know, feeling to it. And I thought, if I can insert myself into the story as the de facto great-grandson of trying to find out about my great-grandfather. Just, like, what if you just found out that your great-grandfather was an Olympic champion? You never knew. Right. And, and what would you do? You would just go crazy. You'd f- want to find out everything you pro- possibly could, I would think. So what's what's no with the documentary? It's it's no longer happening. <laughs> Here's what happened: the documentary, um, I I refused to allow it to be released. Okay. It wasn't up to snuff, but what happened was when the documentary was in the can and done, mm-hmm. post production, colorization, all that stuff, more information came to light about Orton that I couldn't get right. into the documentary. I couldn't go back in and start to re-edit and stuff like that, and it came in waves. It's amazing how you can put a Google search in. You put in George Orton. And then one day you get an email saying, oh, here's something about him, here's something about him. Well, I decided to put him into a YouTube search. And incredibly, someone had done, a young lady had done a, right. a, a research project a decade ago when she was in grade seven. And this popped up. Now, I would have, who would have thought of this? It, it ended up on YouTube. It was her project. And there was a visual component to it. And she had done, a, like, they were taking some pictures of this really nice display. And she had done this. Re- pretty extensive for a gray seven research on George <laughs> Orton. So it's as if I found like another someone else that was interested in this guy, but years ago. So I got in touch with her. We had a wonderful conversation. I asked her, you know, all about why, why did you choose this guy? And what did you, what were your impressions of him? And they were similar to mine. So this was something I couldn't put into the, into right. the, um, the, the documentary yet. It was a perfect story to add on if there was going to be a book. So the people at Dunder and press, so Scott Fraser said, I love this. You got to write a book. What did you learn about the economics of being creative in Canada? Like being an author and a documentary filmmaker, because it's obviously not easy. The money's not... No, unless you're a best-selling author or documentarian, you're not going to make the money from it. it. It really comes from the love of the project. But getting it, but even getting people to be interested in it, in a sense, like you you did shop this around for a while, did you not, to some publishers? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it, what's the, I'm, I'm looking at that in terms of, you know, how hard is it here to, to get something off the ground? You know, you've got to write a great little treatment, a great little one-page thing that's going to get people to watch. It's not unlike if you're on Netflix or something and you're flipping through and you're looking at the, the cover of the book or the cover of the, of the show. You know, that's going to, oh, that looks interesting or that doesn't look interesting. So in my case, it was how do I get someone interested? How do I explain to someone what it's about to get them interested? So what I tried to do is say, well, imagine it's a Forrest Gump-type character, but this is a real person, right. a real Renaissance man. And for whatever reason ended up in history's dustbin. He should have been an incre- like celebrated and recognized and feted. And there should be a day named after him or there should be a park named after him or there should be something to recognize this guy. And so my 
you know, I, I really wanted to sort of get that across, but at the same time kind of go, you know, I want to take some journalists or journalism to task to let you know that there's probably some really great stories out there. This was one that kind of fell into my lap, the story idea, but then to dig down deep and find out more was like a detective novel. Like what? Like, you know, and then the more you would find out, the more interesting it became. And, and after a while, it was like, like the, another another accomplishment, another one, another one, another one. And so I think this is, I mean, I'm biased here, but this is about the greatest person uh, with incredible accomplishments I, I'd ever read about, a real, an actual real person that had these accomplishments uh, athletically, academically. The, uh, he was the face of social change in a lot of ways to a lot of people. And, and he never said a word about himself, so... To me, that makes it even more endearing a story. He never spoke highly of himself. He even thought he was an average runner <laughs> with all those records. Yeah, who, now, obviously, now we're going to think it's always folly to sort of look through everything. Oh, we know better now. But, you know, yes, this weekend in Canada, like we don't try to date ourselves when we're doing this, mm. but it happened to be a pretty good weekend for Canadians who don't pick up a hockey stick. You know, Bianca and Drisco wins mm -hmm. her first W8 tour title. Alfonso Davies becomes the youngest player in 20 years to score for Bayern Munich. Uh, Duke gets a number one seed. RJ Barrett yep. of Mississauga is one of their stars. Danny Shapovalov does well. Uh, yeah. Felix Auger-Aliassim does well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But who are, who are like some other, you know, great Canadian sports figures who were like the George Ortons of their era? Like, you think, man, like, why do people not know about her or do not know about him? Yeah, uh, it, it's a good, you know, it's a good analogy. I mean, Bianca Andreescu is 18 years of age. She's poised. She's very much like George Orton would have been at around the same age. He was at the University of Toronto. He ran second in 1891 as an 18-year-old to the world champion, E.B. George. And so... At that time, in Toronto especially, there was a real buzz about this guy. Thousands would show up to watch him run. So he would have been the equivalent at the time of Andreescu. The question now is that could Bianca Andreescu possibly accomplish what Orton did in a grand scheme? Like, could she become a PhD and, uh, you know, be the equivalent of what Orton did? Could she enact social change? Could she come up with something similar to inventing numbers numbered football jerseys which he invented it was him and john l heisman came up with the idea why don't we put numbers on jerseys so that you know those are incredible accomplishments but they pale in comparison nowadays to winning a a major in tennis a major in golf being up there with the elitist winning a gold medal in the olympics that is the elitist of elite and it doesn't matter what else you do i reference in the book willie mays one of the great baseball players of all time. No one ever said anything about Willie Mays other than his baseball skills, about his intelligence, his sense of humor, his, uh, you know, uh, if he was a giving person, if he was a charitable person, if he was a good father, good, never. It's only about baseball. This guy was the opposite. He was as well-rounded as they come. And if any athlete from here on in would be as well-rounded as George Orton, I would say that would be a minor miracle. I have a couple of final questions for you. Um, so I'll start with this one. Um, what are the plans going forward with this? I know you're trying to get his name into, as you said, mm -hmm. into some places where he will be recognized officially. Right. And before you answer that, would you like Canada to, to do something ahead of Paris 2024? Tokyo is coming up, but since Paris is coming in 2024 and that's where he won, mm. would you like the Canadian Olympic Committee to do something? I think they should, sure. But, I mean, not necessarily because of Paris 2024. Just the fact that, you know, maybe – Maybe put a picture of him on the Canadian Olympic website, like maybe instead of a ghost, 
like maybe recognized yeah, the I first that up. winner and, and just I, I was gobsmacked when I saw that. And maybe some recognition, you know, over and above, maybe a little bit of text. I'll help with the text because I've read all of this in the Canadian Encyclopedia and all this stuff. And I know these people meant well. I get it. And they just probably copied what they saw right. in other publications, believing it to be true. And why wouldn't you? Um, but I'd like to kind of correct all of that because I think you know, this is a missing piece of Canadian history. It's a missing piece. There's a chunk there. Well, wait a second. How, how did we overlook this guy? Like, what happened? And so, you know, I, I would. I would like to see some recognition there. But I think more than anything else is um, uh, we've been approached by um, a movie production company that says well, we really want to make a, like a really good film about this guy. Great. And so that's very exciting to me. So that, that, that it sort of lives on there. And I, I, I'd be interested in seeing how... Because when people ask me about him, I'm going, well, how much time do you have? I mean, his accomplishments were so numerous. How do you take that and make a movie out of it or a story out of it? How do you uh, contextualize him? It's really difficult. So, you know, I just think that um, he needs to be recognized. And the first thing you need to do is you need to go to these, these places where people will Google and get them to change or add or, you know, um, get it to, to correct uh, the mistakes. So that when someone pop, hits his name, it's like, oh. Like, I had to go to Wikipedia myself, of course, because you can do that. And I had to straighten people out on Wikipedia. I had to make all these changes that were in Wikipedia because who knows how many people have looked up George Orton on Wikipedia and gone, oh, American winner. Now, there's a picture of him, not him, his brother, by the way, and a few other things like that. And what other false? So I, so I wiped all of that out in Wikipedia. I, I wiped it all out. And I put in my own text and then used the book as a reference because I can because I am the foremost authority on this man. <laughs> and hopefully and they're going to make a movie and I mean factually I've got it all now with a movie you can take some creative license of course you could a docudrama right we have no film of George Orton how do we portray George Orton how you know we can't just take pictures like Ken Burns did in his documentary it's uh, kind of slow moving you need to have a little bit of pace to it so that would be an interesting challenge so as you may or may not know, this podcast is, is strictly dedicated to talking with athletes and authors about sports books but I think it would be very wrong if we didn't talk to you about what you're most famous for, which is hosting Sportsline. And just, I want to revisit that. Um, I know you, you last were, I guess, a mainstream media broadcaster in mm. 2015. Since then, you host Hebsey on Sports that's right. uh, podcast. Yep. How's that going? That's and, great. And, and yeah, that's cool. Is that, yeah. I do it twice a week. I think when I started podcasting, everybody was like a once a week thing. You know, we'll do it on a Monday or that kind of thing. And I thought, you know, I, once a week isn't quite enough. So if I do it on Mondays and Fridays, you know, Mondays, because Monday morning, we tape it around 9 in the morning, and it's up, it's up by 10 a.m. Like, you know, it's up there, so you can listen, you know, Monday early in the day to what happened. And then a Friday one as well. So that's, it's fun to do. There's no time limit. I try to around 45 minutes or so, but there's no, if it's going good, and it's interesting to talk. So there's no shortage of things to talk about. I grew up a Toronto sports fan. Now, I like other teams from other leagues, but I'm a Jays, Leafs, Raptors, TFC guy and most of my friends are the same we are fans of the home team first and foremost the rest of the league sometimes we are some if we're in an nfl pool or we're in a basketball pool that's different so we like torontonians first toronto teams first and then Canadians second and that's kind of the way i do the show i don't have to answer to anyone if i don't want to talk about the uh the, the tournament bracketology i won't if i just want to reference rj barrett and a few other canadians that's fine um so the beauty of that is that I, there's no master, there's no chorus, there's no Rogers, there's no bell to answer to, only myself. And I talk about what I want to talk about, not what I think 
people want to talk about, what I want to talk about, and hopefully they'll want to be part of that. Are there parallels with that when you look back on that 11-year run with Sportsline where the big corporations didn't have a hand on yep. what you were talking about oh, and then yeah. something like the Hebsies gets created? You, you know what? It's exactly right. When I was at Global, they just said, look, just make, make good television. Make us want to watch. And just don't drop an F-bomb. That was pretty much it. You know, you're, you're left to your own devices. Just be smart. Don't do anything dumb and have some fun and, you know, right. push the envelope a little bit. Um, and so I think maybe once we might have gotten a call from a sponsor that would question something. But there were plenty of other sponsors that were more than willing to jump aboard. So I don't think that people worried too much about it. And they told us this was back in the 80s. They said, you know, Sportsline makes a million dollars a year. So when Taddy and I heard that, we went, a million dollars? Like, that was a lot of money. A million dollars a year? Wow. How come we're not getting some of that action? Um, but, yeah, they never bothered us. They never, ever once said, you can't say that or say that or suggested we do. You know, they might suggest a story on someone in particular. But the way I understand it with my friends who are in mainstream media now is, you can't do that. you got to run it up the flagpole. There's got to be approved by four or five different people. Even if you come up with an idea that's a great idea that, uh, that your boss says that's great, you got to still propose it. It's got to go through various channels. And that, to me, would just be exhausting. I, and I know Nate, watched Global Sports Line and watched the Hebsies and looked forward to the Hebsies. It was a t appointment TV. You had to make sure you, you, know, you couldn't record it or anything. This was pre-PVR. How did you uh, come pre up? Yeah, but wait a minute, pre-PVR, but, but VHS, right? Like We could have taped it. Yeah, like when we started we it, it. We like people it. couldn't stay up that late. I remember the Detroit Red Wings, and their, who was their, oh, their coach at the time was... Um, it was Jacques Demers. was Jacques Demers, but the assistant coaches were Dave Lewis, Colin Campbell. Uh, anyway, they lived in Windsor, and you, could, you couldn't get global in Detroit, but you'd get in Windsor, of course. So they would tape the show every night, and they would bring the VHS tapes in, VHS tapes in, and then the Red Wings, after their practice, when they were riding the bike and stretching, would watch Sportsline from the night before because we had the highlights of the entire league. We had all those highlights, and they didn't have that in Detroit. The Detroit sportscasters didn't have that technology or they didn't use it. So we would have all of them. The guys loved it. I mean, the first time I ever met Eiserman, he goes, oh, I never, I never miss your show. I go, what are you talking about? He had a little antenna. He had an antenna back in the day, like a 10-foot uh, satellite antenna in his backyard. And then when we went to Edmonton, Gretzky and Asatikin and all these guys, the same thing. Oh, we watch you all the time. We could not believe it. We thought, you know, we're in Ontario. People watch us in Toronto, Ottawa, maybe that kind of thing. How, how were the Hebsies created? The Hebsies were, it was my, I saw there used to be a guy in Washington named Warner Wolf. And Warner Wolf used to do a thing. This was before the George Michael sports machine. Warner Wolf did the sports on WTEM, I think it was, in Washington. And he did it in such a way, hey, oh, and here's the highlights. Oh, look at Reggie Jackson. Hey. So I kind of got, I liked that pattern. And he would do it, I think he would do it once a week. He was just the plays of the week or whatever they called it. And I thought, this is really cool. And we had access to all these different feeds, like Westinghouse, the Westinghouse-owned stations in Pittsburgh and Philly and places like that. They would record the games sometimes, or they would have wild interviews, or you get some practice footage or something. And so our uh, our producers would see these things, and I'd say, oh, what's, give me that for the Hebsey Awards. So our guys would look out for certain odd things. Now, the Hebsey Awards were never, very rarely was it a great goal, because there's tons of those. It might be a Denny Savard triple spinorama type of thing, but generally speaking, it was bloopers. It was guys falling or fights, you know, or guy, but usually it was a spill or a fight or, you know, something wacky like that. And our producers used to love to find stuff. And then they would bring, and the Taddy could never look at the stuff. 
They wouldn't let him see it because I wanted him to be surprised when he saw it on the air live. So my, the producers would come to me. I mean, Anthony and, uh, and uh, Dave Rutherford, they would come and say, here's one. And they would show and I'd say, nah, it doesn't make the cut. Oh, you sure? No. And then someone else would say, I got this one here. It's uh, frozen turkey bowling. What? So he'd show me this clip and it was on a real bowling alley with real pins. But instead of throwing a bowling ball, you had a frozen turkey. And you would throw the frozen turkey down the thing and, and then knock off the pins. And then the second ball, you would have to hurdle yourself. <laughs> Not a ball, but you would have to run down the alley and then slide head first to knock down pins. So he had this video. I said, this is great. This, that was a Hebsey award. Well, TSN was running, you know, a great save or a great catch or whatever, you know, whatever stuff like, which was okay. Yeah. Our stuff was a little more bizarre and a lot of fun. You know what? On that note, I'm going to ask you, because we're almost running out of time here. Is there anything else you'd like to add either about Sportsline or about our our guest of honor today here, posthumously, uh, uh, George Orton? Hmm. Uh, well, look, Sportsline was a great run. I, I totally enjoyed it. We were innovative. I think we sort of started the trend of, hey, let's run highlights and just right. like have some fun, that type of thing. So I'm pretty, I'm really proud of that, the way it's sort of evolved into, and now every sports cast has that element. Like I tune in to watch the highlights. I want to see that. As far as George Orton goes, you know, it's a, it's sort of a, it's a labor of love, but also I feel as if I have to be a spokesman for this guy because he never spoke up for himself. I know people like this, incredibly modest people. A lot of brilliant people are just, they don't want to talk about their accomplishments. And a lot of times it's, it's your background too. Right. You don't. You're you, yeah, you're raised. You don't speak. You don't. You, you don't pat yourself mm. on the back. This guy went to the extreme to not pat himself in the back, and he had every reason to be the one guy, the one human being, to pat yourself on the back for all of your accomplishments, what you've done, for you know, for your uh, the the school you represented, your country, even though at the time it wasn't a nationalistic thing, just being a good person, and you know, even his rules for for runners. Like play straight. Don't be underhanded. Be be you know. Um, um, don't smoke tobacco. I mean, you know. Be clean. Be a good person. Mm. Just those types of things. Those values that he had. I think he stuck with his entire life, and I think that showed that he he was a great man. He he accomplished a lot, and he never wanted any credit for it at all. So he left the he left this earth a better place than when he arrived, and no one really paid attention to that. And I am, and I kind of, I'm, I'm proud of that, that I discovered, because really that's what it was. I discovered this man and his accomplishments. And I, you know, it's nice to have other people go, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Tell me more. So. Well, you can find out all about it. Uh, this book was released uh, in February, I believe. Uh, the Greatest Athlete You've Never Heard Of, Canada's First Olympic Gold Medalist. Thanks, Mark Hepscher, for talking to us today about George Orton. Thank you, fellas. Thank you.